0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to welcome to the show Greg McKeown. He's the author of the book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And he's here to talk about his brand new book, Effortless make it easier to do what matters most. And in this conversation, that's what we're talking about. We're going to touch on essentialism a bit. We're going to bridge the gap from essentialism to effortless and not just talk about what's essential and how to name what's essential, but then how can we make it easier to get those essential things done with less effort? So I'll get out of the way and enjoy this conversation with Greg McEwen. Well, this week, I am thrilled to welcome to the show, for the first time, Greg McEwen. Greg, welcome to Beyond the To-Do
1: List. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
0: No pun intended, or pun intended, I guess. You've been somebody on my list to have as an essential guest. You know, for the longest time, I thought, man, I really want to talk to Greg about essentialism, because it's such a key piece in terms of a book in the space of productivity, in terms of a thought process, you know, that whole efficiency versus effectiveness and getting more done or getting the right things done. I mean, in other words, Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less, the book, is a huge deal to many in the productivity world, including myself. It's one of our cornerstones of being able to say, no, it's not about doing more, you know, it's it's about doing the right things. It's, it's, I would like to do less, but still get everything that's essential done. In other words, yes. So <laughs> yes, it's
1: not about doing more things. It's about doing more of the right things.
0: Yes. And the byproduct of that is, is if you can get into the rhythm of the old book, I want to spend some time on essentialism and then move into effortless, the new book, you know, since I never got a chance to talk to you about essentialism. Like, but I think the thing here is that essentialism sets up as a really good context. For then where effortless comes into play, because the subtitle of effortless is make it easier to do what matters most. Well, what matters most is essential. So it kind of says, you know, this is a one step, two step process, if you will.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, essentialism is a way of 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 doing, of thinking, a way of seeing the world and operating within it and orienting yourself within it. It really has three parts of an ongoing process. We explore what is essential, not what's good, not what's interesting, not what's okay, not what's most pressing or urgent. What's essential? The very important things. Then step two in the process is to eliminate the non-essentials, for example, not just to delegate them, not just to simplify them, to actually eliminate them, to get rid of them. And so then you're left with the most essential things in your life. And step three is to make those as effortless as possible, is to make the execution sustainable so that you can do it consistently, so you can have all the advantages of living an essential lifestyle. But that's what essentialism is. And one of the interesting things to me about writing essentialism and seeing people apply it all over over the world now is how many people missed the third step. (laughs) So that they got the idea that essentialism is about figuring out what's essential and eliminating what's not. But it's almost like they didn't hear the third part. And it's a it's really important. And so uh, important enough that I felt it was necessary to. Uh, to invest in that to emphasize it, to teach it and and eventually I realized, actually it is it's it's so important it is standalone and so I think that they they're very complementary. if people read essentialism now that they know I, I've written effortless they can see it everywhere. It's not like I completely didn't mention this before it it's, it makes up a significant part of what an essentialist does but as you start to delve into it, you start to go, Effortless is itself a philosophy. It's itself a way of operating in the world, and so it requires its own, you know, removal of an old way of thinking, an old paradigm. Uh, needs to needs to give way so that you can discover this more effortless, more at ease way of being and doing in the world. And so, I just see essentialism and effortless as really complementary. I think they are still standalone. I have people who write to me now who have only read Effortless, and it's really enjoyable to hear how they come at the subject, because they are still learning about essentialism, but sort of through a different lens. And, and so you can start with either place. But I think uh, maybe if I could use this example, uh, it's a bit like John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Uh, it's a bit presumptuous example, uh, but like they <laughs> I love created it. I love music it. separately, but together they created the Beatles. That's where the magic happened. And so I think you can come at, at either book first. I wanted them to be standalone, but really it's how they work together that helps people to create a lifestyle around what is essential that they can actually sustain and even get to the next level, but without burning out.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I can see, you know, as somebody who's more recently gone through the effortless book, I can say that there was definitely some, I don't know, muscle memory or tactics that as I was going through it and thinking about it in terms of the thought process that you, that you bring to essentialism, as you're going through and simplifying the essentials, you're asking certain questions about, you know, the, the, it, what, what you've, I, ideally, you've already done the homework and figured out what the essentials are, but If you haven't yet and you're going through effortless the book first, you're going to start asking yourself questions like, you know, uh, this these things that I do constantly, consistently that I have to do, whether I've analyzed that yet or not, how could it be easier or how could I make this more fun or what are some of the possible workflow tweaks or changes that I can do to the plumbing of this workflow that will make it more efficient and more effective?
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I, 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 I think about it this way now, that the people I write to are typically the high achievers. And in a sense, Effortless is a guide for high achievers on how to achieve low stress results. So if you're a high achiever, if you're part of what my brother Justin calls the Hit Squad, that is the acronym hardworking, intelligent, talented group of people, your challenge in life is not whether you're willing to put in effort. The challenge is whether you're running out of space. So if you start to run out of space, like let me say it this way: Who listening to this wants to achieve breakthrough results, uh, even ten x results? And I'm just going to assume it's everyone. Now the question is this: Who listening to this can work 10x harder? (laughs) The the answer to that is like almost no one. Like if you can work 10x harder, that that's what you should do. I mean, great. You know, if you have that realm, I mean, I'm not in favor of not working, of not putting an effort. I have four children. I'm trying to teach them. I'm trying to emphasize that to them. To the, the amount they can contribute and achieve if they're willing to put in effort is enormous. Of course it is. I'm in favor of that strategy. The only problem is you can only go so far with it. What got you here won't get you there. So once people start to get to the point quite quickly where they're going, well, I'm, I'm pretty much maxed out now, you know, well, what do you do? Well, if you believe it's the only strategy, then you're going to keep pushing to the point of diminishing returns or even negative returns. However, if you suddenly discover there is a completely different strategy, a whole array, a a repertoire of strategies for making it more effortless to achieve those results, it is a game changer. Uh, it, It really can change everything because effort is finite. Whereas in these strategies, you can find strategies that will make things literally 10 times easier or even a 100 times easier or a 1,000 times easier, like so that you can achieve incredible results and without burning out. So to me, that's the value proposition here. And somebody can start with that right now. Anyone who feels like, look, there's all these things I want to achieve. I've got goals that really matter to me. Great. Let's start with that. Now let's try to remove the things that are making that harder than it needs to be for you to get those results again and again, and even at the next level up,
0: yeah uh, i for me i as I'm thinking about this as I'm, I'm as I have mental pictures, this is often what happens is thinking about essentialism, I think about I'm not sure where it originated, I think it's a Stephen Covey thing, potentially, but the the metaphor of you know the the glass tub and the the big rocks, the medium rocks, the small rocks that in other words, you know if, if somebody's never heard this, I've seen it done. Physically in front of me as a, yeah, as the big, a the
1: big rock yeah. theory
0: that, uh, you know, they've done it backwards where they've put in all the small ones, all the, all the sand essentially, <laughs> then some smaller ones, some other smaller ones, and then the big ones wouldn't even fit. And so the lesson here is that those are, that was the backwards way to do it. You got to put in the big rocks first, the most important things, the essentials, in other words. With this, with effortless, I can't help but think this is the other side of that. That once you've prioritized, once you've figured out what the big rocks are, and even some of the medium ones, because sometimes, you know, they may have less of a, a heft to them as a rock, but they can still be pr- pretty essential. But that's because th- that's why they're like second tier. But. When it comes to effortless, I'm thinking in terms of the fulcrum and the lever and adjusting that, that you can push on something in a different way after adjusting it and get more out of it or get it done faster or quicker or easier or literally with less effort, right?
1: Yeah. And let's, let's build on that for a second. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jessica Jakeley, who, and she was uh, younger, went to Africa, trying to make a difference there, went with the, her then husband and 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 friends. And they're trying to, how can we get a better result? How can we instigate something to help somebody get a better result? Okay. That's what they're trying to achieve. Now, they come across an entrepreneur. She is selling produce on the side of the street. The only way she gets a result is by putting in effort today. It's one for one. I've got to be here today to sell this produce today, to get paid today, to be able to eat today. So this is a a linear result that she's getting. It's a subsistence level, which of course is not great for so many reasons. But she can't afford to take a day off to improve the system because then she doesn't eat and the children don't eat. So, Jessica looks at the situation and says, well, "Well, what would it take to create a system that would get better results for this entrepreneur? Instead of her just working on her business or, or in her business, rather, how could we help her to work on her business?" So they figure out that if they gave her gift of five hundred dollars, then she would be able to take enough enough time to go and make arrangements with the fisheries, with the farmers to deliver the produce closer to her so that she can cut out the middleman, become more profitable herself, and be able to now just get a bit above what she'd achieved before. So results start to flow a bit more to her than previously. That's a game changer for her and for her family. Now that illustrates one sort of lever, but they didn't stop there. They'd been inspired by Muhammad Yunus and they said, okay, well maybe we could offer the $500 as a loan. Okay, so now that already produces a 10x result. It's a it's it's a new leverage. We're using capital as a leverage, and what it means is that instead of it being one entrepreneur that's helped, it's the next one, and the next one, the next one, and, and you you know that's easily ten entrepreneurs will be helped by the same five hundred dollars. But of course, it could be much more than that. You could have it going on in perpetuity. So that's an example of you know using not just one lever but a second lever to be able to get much better results with the same input. But then they didn't even stop there. They said, well, well, hold on. What if we created one more level of lever and we created a platform, a website where lots of people could make small micro loans to people that were in need elsewhere? So we could increase the amount of capital available and the number of people involved which would help to grow it and grow it. So now you've sort of got these three levers working together, like you have an, a slightly more complex machine, right, where you have a bicycle that uses multiple forms of leverage to, uh, to achieve you know, better results from the same input. They have now delivered $1.3 billion worth of loans with a 97% repayment standard instead of the $500 gift. That's the difference. Yeah, That's an example to me of why effortless matters so much. That's not a 10x, 100x, even 1,000x result. It's, it's much more significant than even a 1,000x result from approximately the same effort, the same input. That's the power of using these levers. That's the power of creating and thinking in terms of systems rather than just in terms of what effort I personally can put forward to get a result.
0: com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, this is the core of why I got interested in productivity originally was this idea that either there's too much to do. So it's about figuring out what needs to be done in what order, time management, all that kind of stuff, calendaring, but that it was also this whole other part, which was energy management. And is there a way to either still spend the same amount of energy or effort and get more results, get better results, bigger results, larger results, however you want to put it, more productive, you know, produce more, in other words, or is there a way that I can get the same amount of output with less amount of effort so that I'm using less energy and then have more for other things, which I think that's a good parallel or path to talk about in terms of the load that we allow ourselves to have and why a lot of people, when they're back in the essentialism world and they're thinking about the big rocks, they say, yeah, but I've got too many big rocks,
1: right? (laughs) Well, I certainly found myself with that problem, which was, uh, which, you know, the the metaphor of the big rocks is all good. I believe in it. Uh, Put in the most important essential things first, then see what room is left for other things. Uh, You know, that, that metaphor is, is, is a good metaphor. I think it's true. I think there's tremendous value in it and I still work on that on a daily basis. But this problem that you just portrayed is like, What happens if you have too many big rocks? What if your responsibilities grow to the point? Like, for example, it happened to me. I'm now the father of essentialism, but also the father of four children. And along the ways, other responsibilities are growing. So I'm being much more selective than I've ever been at this point, but I still find myself running out of space and getting to sort of getting to the uh, the edge of what I feel I'm able to do with the current systems that I have. And then in the midst of that, we have a family emergency when, when one of our daughters suddenly becomes like really ill uh, with what turned out to be uh, a neurological disease and it's sort of inexplicable for a long, for, for months, even as she's going from the picture of health into sort of a very, you know, everything's moving almost at Parkinsonian speed uh, so that she's, it takes a two minutes to write her own name, As she speaks only in one word, slurred answers, monotone voice, no personality. Uh, The light that was so bright in her just sort of goes dark and then it almost uh, goes out altogether. And she's on the way to becoming, you know, comatose and dying. And the neurologists are just, you know, shrugging their shoulders like we don't know what to say. So I'm already feeling at capacity. Then you have this family emergency, this great big rock added on. What became clear in the midst of that potentially agonizing experience was there really are two paths in life. There are two paths of execution. Even after you understand what's essential, the way that you approach it is as important as the thing itself. I, I stand by that statement, by the way, because because think about this with Eve. Now, just speaking about it specifically Helping her get well is the priority right like we know what we we know what our focus is is to have her hundred percent better if it's all possible uh, so how important is the way we approach execution is it is that a trivial part of the the exercise or is it an essential part of it? if we had done it the reactive way the exhausting way, we could have been spent. In days, weeks, certainly within a few months, toast. And I don't just mean like physically burned out, although that's obvious that that could have happened. Uh, but I mean also emotionally burned out. A uh, marriage could have been just strained beyond belief. We could have had our ch- other children resentful, angry, frustrated. You know, we, we could have lived in a state of perpetual anxiety and just been in true agony the whole time. Like that is a, that's not, that's not an exaggerated description of the circumstances. That is often what happens. So it was a, it was, it was a great benefit to us to even be aware, to even have this glimpse that there was an alternative path of execution that we could, for example, live in a way that would remove the anxiety that we could be grateful in everything instead of being, complaining and moaning and whining. We could we could still laugh together. So we're maintaining a positive state, an effortless state, uh, where we're singing together around the piano, we're going on walks still, we're laughing together, we're playing, we're praying, we're, you know, together. We're we're still doing all those things to maintain mental, emotional, physical health around also the state, you know, you can still be at relative ease even in the midst of this externally traumatic experience. Yeah. Why does that matter so much? Because because that was key to being able to be creative and to to have good discernment about what to even spend our time on, to know what to select and what not to select. And that was key to having her receive treatments from from specialists that we might not even otherwise have, uh, have thought to go to and to have met. So, we, the way we approached it ended up being as important as the target. Because if we had approached it in the heavier, you know, more burdened, more anxious approach, we would have burned out before helping her, before being able to do it. It ended up taking uh, two and a half years the journey. It wasn't a few weeks. It wasn't a few months. It's been two and a half years. And at the time of this conversation, she's really thriving again. She's doing very, very well again. So we're, we're of course, we're very grateful for that. Uh, not knowing, of course, it could it could ever come back in the future. So, you know, we we needed to approach it in a way that was sustainable so that we could actually be there for the journey, however long and hard that journey would be. So the way we do it, it's not just getting the right thing, it's doing it in the right way. That is as important as what you pursue.
0: Yes. One, thank you for sharing, because that is a great story and a great application there. And I think it gets to the heart of that when we're talking about essentials, we're not just talking about the biggest rocks that my boss throws at me for example, but it's the essentials. It's the most important. It's the biggest, it's the essentials. It's it, family being one of those biggest things, individual relationships being some of those biggest rocks. And so having a an inventory of what those rocks are to begin with, but then knowing what that, you, you said sustainable, knowing like a pace that's sustainable in terms of, in other words, you said essentialism, is essentially about choosing and doing the right things, but that effortless It's about then taking it one step further and choosing to do those
1: right things in the right way. Yes. I think that, I think that it really is, you know, essentialism is doing the right thing at the right time in the right way. Mm. And effortless is just helping to go, into a deeper evaluation of this for like, well, how do you do it in the right way? To not see that as just, I don't know, take it for granted. Because here's the thing. I have seen people do this for years now. I have watched people go, I know what's essential. I've done the work to get clear on it. Maybe I've even eliminated some non-essentials out of my life. Not all perfectly, but I've got a lot, you know, I've made some progress on that. But then their execution strategy is basically non-essentialist. They'll just go big. Like, like, how about that as an example? They'll go big. They'll go. Okay, i got to. i got to just. This is so important. Therefore, I have to go huge on it. And what they do is boom and bust execution. That they're, they're over before they've almost begun. Okay, let's take a, a, a tiny example. Writing a journal, that's something that, that matters to me, so it's essential to me. I spent years, like most others that have started journals, in what intermittent execution. You know what matters, but your strategy is intermittent. You go big, then you get burned out. So then you stop doing it for a while. You feel pretty discouraged about it. So you can go, maybe it's weeks or months before you feel inspired again. And something triggers you and you go, oh, okay, I can, you know, you get inspired again. But but really, most of the time, you're not keeping a journal. Okay, that's one approach. Why does it happen? Because people write three pages day one. And then by day two, it's almost day two, it's over because they think, well, I can't, I can't. I don't have the time allotted for an hour of journal keeping day two. So by day three, they're now depressed because they've got to make up two hours and they don't have that. So again, it's almost over before they've begun. Now, that's not a question of whether the thing is important. It's a question of what your approach to execution really is. Okay, so I was that person for years until I did just one of the strategies I covered in Effortless, which is putting boundaries on execution. So you have an upper bound and a lower bound, so with journaling what does that look like um for me it was saying no more than five sentences a day i think of think of what that does as soon as you hear that you know, no more than five sentences a day it's like wow that's not very much i had kind to of feel like writing more than that uh but then the advantage is you say well maybe it's maybe it's late and you're exhausted and you think oh i can't be bothered to do it and then you think well okay well it's no more than five sentences how hard is that now the lower bound is no less than one sentence. So if you're tired enough, all you have to do is one sentence. I mean, you can do that if it's a short sentence in 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds. It's a small commitment. But the key is really the upper bound because when you feel energized, you don't use everything up with your energy. You still keep yourself because you want to be doing it on day 10, day 100, day 1000. I started that approach 10 and a half years ago. And I don't think I have missed a day in 10 and a half years. That's the power of it. So now I have a huge, a whole shelf of journals. I go through about four per year. I don't have any upper or lower bound anymore unless I start getting behind for a day or two. And then I just go back to the original rules. Okay, no more than five sentences. You're just going to have a small entry so that you make sure that you catch up. So you're not overwhelmed by it. And then you can go back to what your normal approach is. So that's an illustration of why the execution strategy and effortless execution strategy around finding the right pace really is as important as choosing the focus in the first place.
0: Well, and that dovetails really well into a previous episode where I talked with Jeffrey and Jamie Downs on the power of streaking and i know before people you know get their minds to a place where uh you know it's not appropriate uh it's it's it <laughs> creating a streak of activity doing something that's simple and essential daily to uh, you know it's it's and it, in a sense i think that it does create, like, you can do more, but it's creating just the minimum. In other words, I think you said the over and the under, or what were, what were the specific terms you
1: used? Upper bound and lower bound. Upper bound and
0: lower bound. Yeah. So they had a, they would create a lower bound of saying, you know, for example, my minimum is to, Uh, daily walk one mile. Now that would allow, you know, that's, that's the minimum. They could do more if they wanted to, but they weren't required to, in other words, for that one thing. And and this actually even kind of dovetails even into not just habits, but also into um, perhaps ritualizing things, which I know is something that you go into. I know there's another example that really struck me though, which is with the, I, I can't forget if it's North or South Pole expedition that yeah. that, is, that basically establishes this one really hits me because it establishes why creating a consistent practice on a daily level makes way more sense than the hustle culture that we see so much of.
1: Yeah, look the the is this is this is basically the the space race the moonshot of the of the era. Um, you know, this is this is the the great age of exploration. So the the early years of the twentieth century, and the most sought after goal in the whole world is to reach the South Pole. It had never been done before in all of human history. It's not by Pythias, the first polar explorer back in you know 300 BC. Uh, not by the Vikings, uh, a thousand years later. Not by the Royal Navy and all its prowess and the the British Empire. Uh, and so it was in like, talking like 1911 uh, that there are these two rivals for the Poles that are trying to reach that elusive goal. You've got Captain Scott from Great Britain and uh, the last Viking who's leading Norway, uh, from Norway rather. And they, they have this 1500 mile race against time, race of life and death. Yeah, one team gets back victorious, the other would not return. So, you know, they've set the goal. So they know what it is that they are trying to achieve. So now it's about execution. It's about how do you make that happen? Um, the, the, one of the teams, the British team tries to push really hard on the good weather days. And the consequence of that is that. On the bad weather days they 're exhausted physically, but then they take a hit emotionally because they 're just in their tent they can't make any progress and and then the next day's bad weather too, and the next day and so then they just they they get into a complaining cycle, you have it in this journal, oh, we have the worst weather of anybody who's ever attempted this well, actually, that isn't true, but that's how they felt about it uh They, they had better weather then the team that had gone before them that they had modeled their own trip on. But you see, the cycle had, the downward spiral existed for them. He wrote in his journal, I remember he wrote, I doubt if any party could travel in such weather. Uh, but one party could, and, you know, on a similar blizzard, Amundsen, the last Viking, writes in his journal, it's been an unpleasant day, storm, drift, and frostbite, but we have advanced 13 miles closer to our goal. See, that's the thing. Amundsen had set a rule and his rule was 15 miles. That was actually both his upper and lower bound. He just said, look, it's 15. Good weather day, we're trying to do 15. Bad weather day, 15. And so the plot thickens when Amundsen's team gets within 45 miles of the South Pole. So they're closer to the than anyone who's ever tried before. And they're on the verge of winning the race of their lives and... The surface is as good as ever. The weather is splendid, he wrote, calm with sunshine. And they're on the polar plateau. So they have the ideal conditions to ski and sled their way. And they can do it with one big push in one single day. Instead, though, I mean, what would you do? I mean, what would the, <laughs> what would the average productivity overachiever do on that day? I mean, we're built and in. We're, not built in a biological sense. We're built in a cultural sense to believe that what you do is you push, push harder. That's the way to success. We've been taught it, actually sold that. And to some extent, it's a bill of goods because there's only so far you can push with that strategy. So it's useful, but only to a certain point. Well, anyway, there they have it. It takes them three days. They average again, 15 miles for the last three days. They beat their competitors by 32 days, something like that anyway. And by the time the British team gets there, they're burned out. They're exhausted and so much so that they, that they don't even make it home. Unfortunately, they all die on the way home out of, out of exhaustion. The boom and burst approach is just a dire strategy for execution, uh, even though it's the most dominant one that's used. Intermittent execution is the dominant and natural consequence out of a, a, a no pain, no gain, hustle mindset that we have been sold. That those all go together. They're all a con. It doesn't matter how many heroics you teach, how much you reward it. It's actually counter data. It's counter the, the, the science. We actually know and understand about what makes peak performance, especially over time. So let me just tie this up The one of uh, the biographer of a terrific biography of the of of this great competition between these two teams uses a phrase that to me when I read it was breathtaking. He he said that the Norwegian team reached their destination, and here is this quote: "Without particular effort." (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what do you what? How can he use such a phrase? How unthinkable is it that the great exploration of the age, one of the most extreme physical challenges and mental challenges fathomable then, or even now, if you suddenly signed up for doing it now, that was the description without particular effort. How can it be? And yet that was his description of the experience, this pace, this steadiness. Of course, there was effort. I mean, I, 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 I don't want to overdo the point either. And yet that wasn't the phrase that he wanted, he chose to describe the experience for this team. They achieved it without particular effort. They weren't forcing it. They weren't these great heroics and, you know, terrible things that they're doing and destroying their bodies to achieve one more inch today. And this, in fact, is not just true for this this, this race to the polls. It's true in most of the data about how successful people maintain success and how successful people become very successful and break through to the next level. When you actually study it, when you go back beyond the media distortion, the media distortion is really important because they need a story. And the story that gets told is the dramatic. You know, how, how, how entertaining is a story that says, and you know, and Greg wrote his journal um, again today, no more than five sentences. It's like it's not interesting. <laughs> so it gets a, a hugely undertold and undersold. And so as it is, this, 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 this feedback loop that reinforces a story that's just wrong. It's just wrong. The way to break through performance is not hustle more, force, more kill yourself stuff. It's just not the right way to think about it at all. What we want is sustainable. What we want is to be able to find the right pace and to be able to continue it. Be diligent, of course. You want to give it, you want to be disciplined, but you want to build systems so that the execution becomes easier and easier over time so that you can accomplish more and more without strain, without particular effort.
0: One of the things that I want to highlight here is The effortless book is broken into three sections, one called effortless state, one called effortless action, and then the other called effortless results. And I, you know, I couldn't help but think of, you know, as, as these people are on their expedition, you highlighted the difference between the two different crews. One being we're going to basically hustle in the good weather and then be so burnt out, we do nothing in the bad weather. And then the other being, we're going to do a certain sustainable pace, whether it's good weather or bad weather. And I couldn't help but think of that weather being the context or the surrounding atmosphere that the work or effort is being put into. And that often, whether we're in a cubicle or we're working from home or wherever we're doing, whatever it is we're doing, that there's a maybe a tediousness to our tasks or a uh, a drudgery or a grudge work element to some of the stuff. Because even if we have a certain amount of agency and we've done the essentialism work to figure out what our big rocks are, that doesn't mean we get away with not working on the smaller rocks. And so I wonder if if you could highlight a little bit of a way to maybe clear up that, that day-to-day weather not necessarily being as much of an issue. In other words, Maybe leaning into creating rituals um, to 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 change that weather. In other words,
1: yeah, that's right. So so Stephen Covey used to say, uh, you know, that the proactive people carry the weather with them, and I and I think that's a really terrific metaphor. Here is is that there's all sorts of things you can't control. Um, there's all sorts of activities you you say I'm going to do them even though you know they don't inspire the imagination. I'll give you an example my own family is uh, is like cleaning up after dinner. Uh, okay, that's not no nobody's nobody's going to erect a statue for having done that, right? It's not it's not grandiose in any way, and yet if you don't do it, you have a significant problem. So it's still it's still important. It's still a, a necessary part of the uh, of having you know, good family, good environment, good culture. So it used to be that that this was drudgery, or at least drudgery in the sense that my children were like, uh, I don't know, they were like silent ninjas, (laughs) would suddenly just be gone, you know, like dinner's over and they're gone. And then if you, it's cat and mouse, bring them back, and they've got good excuses. I've got homework. Oh, I'm going to the bathroom. And so it's just not fun for anyone involved. Nobody's enjoying that. As we say, okay, well, how can we make it effortless? Could we do better than we're doing right now? And so we did a few things. We said, okay, well, what does done look like? We got clear on the outcome so that it doesn't go on forever. You know, I could be guilty of that as the manager in this story. Okay, well, we'll clean this and this and this and this, and so then nobody knows when we're done. So, okay, so we said, well, what does done look like? And we got very clear on that, specific. Uh, we said, okay, who's doing what? rather than just everyone's doing everything and anyone can be told in any given moment, okay, can you do this now? Can you do that now? Right? Like so role, role separation. We've got some minimum standards identified. What does clean look like? What how do you know when your task is acceptable? And so all of this is done. This is like training and the day arrives when we're going to put this all into practice. And this is what happens. This is, this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? Nothing happens. Uh, is exactly what it was before. Uh, there's Ninja, Ninja City again. They're all gone, all silence. And, and the, the tipping point was where my oldest daughter just added one more feature. It sounds, whatever, unimpressive, but it was just to put on karaoke music, loud Disney classics. And that, that's, that's not going to work for everybody, I'm sure, but that was just enough to make it instead of a tedious chore into an enjoyable ritual. And so then like, cause, cause what it turned out, it was kind of a party atmosphere after that. And literally like the children just started, somebody starts singing and then everyone's singing. and Everyone's kind of dancing as we're doing this. So all the training was a necessary condition, but it was this additional thing about turning. It wasn't just having a routine or a habit. It's like a habit with a soul. And that's the difference between a habit and a ritual habit is something you do a ritual is how you do it because how you do it is like if you do it in the right way, the doing can become enjoyable. You look forward to the thing instead of looking forward to the result after the thing. And, and that's that's a really important distinction. A lot of people think exercise needs to be drudgery. A lot of people think everything that's essential has to be drudgery. (laughs) And they get into this idea that that's why they don't do it. Well, you know, I mean, that's, we got to do it, but it's hard. And so as soon as you divide, separate essential and hard from easy and trivial, as soon as you think the world is divided into those two types of tasks, then you're really stuck because the very thought of doing the essential thing will overwhelm you. Starting to do it will exhaust you, and so you just keep jumping back and forth between the two you're either working hard on on something that's essential you get tired and then you go to the easy but trivial and you just jump back and forth between them because you don 't like being in the easy but trivial because you feel guilty it's like the dark playground it's like ah oh, I don't really want to be here and so you, you're jumping back and forth between these two and it's just it's just like that's not the only option it's a false dichotomy there's there's a you can make it. Rituals that are enjoyable in and of themselves so that you do start to look forward to doing them. You can splice together activities that you want to do anyway with things that you deem as essential. Uh, I'll give you an example from today in my life. You know, I have I've had an intent to just kind of learn some Spanish exercise. I'd like to exercise. Um, those two things could, if you're in the old mindset, this false dichotomy, you could easily, you know, again, people choose exercise they hate. Well, stop choosing exercise you hate. Don't do that. Find something you enjoy. Make it enjoyable so that you look forward to doing it. Why not? Be be creative. Find that there is an enjoyable. So uh, for me, it's uh, I I like swimming. That's one of the things I do. There's a, I have access to a, a place that's nice. It's beautiful weather. I go and swim. It's easy. It's enjoyable. I have an upper bound. 40 lengths has been my upper bound as I get back into the habit because they closed everything through the pandemic. It's open again. So I said, okay, I don't want to go back to 100 lengths immediately because then I'll burn out too soon. Won't want to go the next day, third day, fourth day, I'll be out. I said, I want to be going this every day. I will be doing this, well, not every day, but several times a week. And so I'm doing this. So I've swim now 40 lengths until I get so, to, for a few few times, I'm like, man, I want to do 50, but no, show some restraint. You know, that's part of discipline is not doing something, but not doing something is part of discipline. And so I'm swimming. And then I, I have this idea like, oh, there is a way that I could do this Spanish while I'm swimming. I found a great Spanish program by Pimsler, And so I'm literally just listening to this and doing it while I swim. That to me is a ritual right there.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's the consistency thing. That's the, I mean, that gets back to the streak idea that I was talking about that the consistency of showing up. See here, as I'm listening, I'm thinking, let's see here. So you've got exercise being a factor. You've got the Spanish being a factor, or we'll call them variables, if you will. So the variable of exercise, the variable of the Spanish, the variable of figuring out how to combine them. In other words, your variables are going to be different than my variables, but by figuring out what the right chemistry of variables is, you come up with something that long-term and short-term breaks through. You've got daily consistent fun <laughs> or enjoyment of getting a thing done. And even if some days you don't notice it being fun and other days you notice it being more fun, it's that you're still consistently doing it every single day and it's building and growing and, and bearing fruit.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I just, if I just simplify it, I would just say uh, look at the things that you enjoy doing anyway and will do anyway and see if you can't combine that with something that is essential to you that you previously thought of as being drudgery. Yes. Uh, I have a, have a, a CEO friend who loves a particular podcast that he listens to, you know, on a daily basis. He'll do that anyway. He wants to do that. But running on a treadmill isn't something he does consistently. So he says, "Okay, makes a rule. The only time I'm allowed to listen to the podcast is if I'm on a treadmill. And after that, he never misses a day. So he just took something that was enjoyable, and he, he connected it to something that he himself has identified as essential. And he's creating a, a ritual that he looks forward to doing more, at least, than before. Yes. So it's that's that's the that's the combination. I mean, it's not it's not really rocket science, but just because it's sort of common sense doesn't make it common practice, uh, especially in a culture that celebrates heroics in the way that we've described, that celebrates burnout. Uh, almost like a badge of honor in and of itself, then then you're going to have bad, out of that bad paradigm comes bad practice uh, where people think, you know, literally not just think, state it, print it, tattoo it, no pain, no gain. I mean, that's not what the data shows, but it's okay. You can have that cultural assumption if you like. It won't serve you well. No pain, no gain is like the bloodletting of the 21st century. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Bloodletting went on for you know for the longest time in the medical community. All the while, it's hurting people, it's damaging people, sometimes killing people, and yet they're saying, "Well, this is the thing to do because that was the paradigm." The data did not support that. The re- or certainly, the reality did not support that assumption. Those things were really counter. Similarly, now what when you actually study what data we have about how to have peak performance, especially over time. We know a lot about how to achieve that, but what people are being taught, what they're seeing in social media, what they hear in media stories creates a, a counterfeit and, and it does a lot of damage. It's like in productivity, sometimes we're still operating out of a mindset that was created either in the industrial revolution or, or even just like in the 1980s, where you've got some sort of motivational speakers screaming, you know, you you just have to put it all in, you put in all the effort, and you'll get everything you want out. Like it's just like, yeah, that isn't actually what works.
0: Uh, I, I just uh, I can start to think about how people, as they as they grab the effortless book, will start to find that some of those things that one they've not thought about in terms of retooling how they do their essential stuff. They'll actually start to think about, oh, yeah, I forgot I'm a little off kilter in terms of what my essentials even are, it, it, which is great because you've got an ongoing conversation with your podcast, which I'll make sure to to link up here. So the the, the, the podcast is called What's Essential and uh, people can find it at Greg dot com slash podcast. I'll link that up in the show notes as well so people can find that great start so far. Lots of great guests. One of the podcasts that I am now subscribed to, I'll just say that. So,
1: Oh, that's nice of you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been a terrific adventure doing it. I mean, we just we just hit top five podcasts in self-improvement, uh, top eight I think in, uh, in the educational uh, category. And so, you know, it, we, we, we have a real show and it's just growing really fast now. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm loving it. I'm feeling, I mean, I, we started in the midst of pandemic, you know, we literally couldn't even get recording equipment. We started and we just said, Hey, we're just going to be consistent. And I didn't know actually, despite everything I've just said in this interview, how good of a strategy that was. But one of my other podcaster friends was saying that 90% of people who start podcasting will quit by episode three, I guess. And of the 10% remaining, another 90% will quit by episode 21. And so literally, if you just are consistent, you will outperform the vast majority of your competitors just because you're still there. I mean, that to me is a great, it's literally true. Uh, we're in it for the long run with, with, uh, with the What's Central podcast, but we're also just trying to improve everything as we go now. We've learned a lot. And so I think people are responding, uh, you know, well, I think it's a great metaphor, too, for everything we've been talking about today, which is that that you can achieve the most extraordinary things if you can build systems that make it truly easier and easier over time to be consistent. If you can do that, then you you unlock uh, a whole way to break through to a whole next level of results and also without burning out, which is good news at the end of the year and a half's disruptive pandemic that's I think burned so many
0: people out. Yes, yes. We all need to recover from the the burnout of the last year and a half or so. Some of us before even that point were already That's right. You know, working harder, not smarter. And so uh, this is a great call to action to switch that up. Let's start thinking a little differently. Let's start moving forward a little more smart instead of, you know, burning out and hustling. So Greg, great talking with you and open invitation to come back on the show, not just for a next book, but if there's another topic that comes up and you're just like, Hey, I want to test this out, see how this goes, like like a stand up comedy, yes. uh, you know, stage. I, Feel like, free. That. I like that. Thank <laughs> you so much for that offer. So Great talking with you. And uh, again, I'll link to the book and the podcast in the show notes. And thank you so much for talking with me.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Greg McEwen. I know that I was thrilled to finally be able to talk to him. It was well worth the wait. I know that essentialism and effortless are both worthwhile books to pick out. And as you can see from this conversation, you should be able to pick which one you want to go to first. It's not a one, two step locked in kind of a structured thing, but make sure to at least take some action by grabbing one of those books for sure, especially if you've not read either one of them. Thanks again for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this. I hope you got something out of it. Would you do me the favor that if you got something out of this podcast episode, you would share it with somebody else that you know needs to hear it think of that one person, hit that share button in your podcast player app of choice or over on the show notes at beyondthetodolist.com. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next episode.